It comes from 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word of our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Ryan. I thank you for his gift of teaching, and I thank you for the careful way that he handles your word. Lord, this morning I pray that uh, you would silence any of his own words and you would magnify your own. And for us as a congregation, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a series, if you're new with us, this is a series about really the next five years in New City Church, where we're headed. Um, and we've just seen it so fitting to, to, to hit pause while we're still in the school for whatever happens next happens, to make sure that we're in line with God's design for how his church is organized and governed so that we can be most effective in making disciples of Jesus who live in community and on mission for decades to come. And so uh, this is kind of a, a series about what leadership looks like in New City. And so, um, and so th- this is the last week of that. We, the first week, Brandon looked at, at this idea of just God's design and servant leadership and, and how, uh, how the family of God works together and how, how genders within, within the family of God complement one another. And, and last week, we looked at this idea of, uh, of the elder and, and the role of the elder, specifically uh, to focus on word, care, and prayer in Jesus' church. And this week, it, we're, we're looking at the role of the deacon, which is uh, really an assistant to the elder that, that is to focus primarily on service and stewardship in the church. And, and I'm going to be unpacking that today. But before I get into that, um, I just want to take a moment to pause and to, and to remind us of, of who we are in Jesus before we talk about what we do for Jesus. Because I don't know about you, I forget that like every single week. Uh, uh, and, and, and here's the deal. Here's what we're talking about today is the fact that Jesus has come and he has, he has loved us so deeply and so tenderly and so fully that he has made us his. Fully, finally, eternally his. And he's done that through seeing beyond your sinful estate, through the things you did when you were 12 or 20 or this morning. And, he, and he's come near to us. He's come near to unbearable, tarnished, lost rebels like me and you. That's what Jesus has come to do. And, and, and what, he, what he's come to do is he's come to take our guilt. He's come to take our shame. He's come to take our pain. And he's come to own it and to make it his. And he's, he's done that. By living a perfect life, standing in our stead as one who could be called righteous on our behalf. And then he went to a cross. And on that cross, that was our cross. And on that cross, he bore all of our sin and all of our shame, past, present, future, 
for all time so that we could be made one with God once again. Amen? He's come to do that for us. And if we forget that, it doesn't matter what we do as his church. That is the motivation for us to live as his people and to surrender our lives and our ideas about his design to him. And to say that he is the Lord of Lords, he is the King of Kings, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And because of that, we surrender our lives to him. And, that, and what we're talking about today is a surrendered life as the family of God. And, and our idea is that we want Jesus to be Lord of his church, King of his church, head of his church. And that our mission is to live as these rescued, blood-bought saints to the best of our ability by the power of his spirit in his design so that his name and his glory would go to the ends of the earth. That, that's why we're here this morning. And this series is so important because if it's up to us to decide how Jesus' church is ran, we'll mess it all up. We'll make it all about ourselves. So Jesus gives us his word through the Apostle Paul, and he shows us how his church is to be set up and to be governed and to be ran to be most effective for the mission of making disciples in this world. And these qualifications that we're going to be looking at today are really standards of sanctification, not justification. None of these standards that we look at today are, are the way that we earn our salvation. No, it's not that. It's, it's the character qualities that we should see in a man of God who is following Jesus that we might put to lead us in the office of deacon. It's, it is Jesus that changes us. It is Jesus, Jesus that conforms us more and more to his image through the Spirit. And what we're looking at today is how that all works together for God's glory and our good as we live in his church. So as I, as I said, I just want to draw your attention quickly to kind of the design of God uh, for us. If you think about the family of God, which is, which is the, my favorite way to talk about the church, it was one of Paul's favorite ways to, to, to consider us as the family of God. We've been adopted as blood-bought sons and daughters of the Most High King by the work of Jesus. And now we're a family. So some of you like me, maybe you don't have that much of a family. You've got a small family. Maybe you've got a big family. You've got a good idea what this looks like. doesn't matter. This is your family here. And in some ways, your family in Christ will relate to you and know you more than any other family member you ever have because you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and because of that, what we see is that there's this design that God has in creation. And it all stems out of his own identity. When you think about God, we, he, is, he is one God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we see is that they are all equal in value, glory, and power, yet they are distinct. When you think about how God's design is reflective from his identity in marriage, it's interesting as well. Husband and wife, equal in value as image bearers of God, yet complementary in role with husband charged in spiritual leadership to sacrifice himself for the spiritual flourishing of his family. It is reflective in the church. This is why the church is also called the bride of Christ. We as the church are called to submit ourselves to the teaching and life of Jesus Christ. He is our head. He is our leader. We submit to him in everything. And distilling it even further, it is reflective in the local church. God's design is that each and every one of us play a crucial role in the family of God. And some of those roles, as we've talked about last week, are ordained offices. And some of those are unordained roles of service 
in the church. And let me just say this. The church doesn't flourish the way it's intended to when one of those is neglected or one of those is, is kind of off base. We're given this structure in the Scriptures so that we might best and most effectively live under the, the leadership of Jesus. And this is why when you read the book of Titus, Paul's writing to his disciple Titus on the island of Crete. And he's like, hey man, this thing has got, it's, it's going, it's up and going, it's good. But you need to put this thing into order so it can flourish. That's what we want to do as New City Church. We want to live under Jesus' leadership and we want his church to flourish. I want this church to outlive me. Amen? If it's a church of Jesus, it should. I want this church to outlive you, your, to your grandkids and their kids and their kids. If we listen to God's word, he will bless that. That's what we want to see God do. So let me give you a little bit of a background just of our local church here and why we don't have deacons right now. Uh, in 2017, as nearly a three-year-old church, we, uh, as Presbyterians call it, particularized, where we, we, we raised up our own elders in this church. You nominated them. We trained them. Our presbytery uh, uh, examined them to make sure that they were the kind of elders that could lead a young church. And we put, we put uh, six of us forward. We talked about that a little bit last week. Um, and so uh, after, that, after that period, we, kinda, we came out from under the mothership, as I call it, Perimeter Church. And, uh, and we, we've been standing on our own for some two and a half years now. Now at that time, we could have installed deacons as well. But my concern and our concern as elders was that we might, we might uh, kind of blow through God's design and rush it too much. And so we wanted to get established on our own as a group of elders leading a local church before we brought uh, the assistants to the elders, which are deacons, in uh, the mix as well. But, but now as we're, we're kind of two, almost two and a half years past that, we're really sensing that now is the time that we have our first class of deacons be nominated, trained, and elected at, here at New City Church. And so uh, this, this sermon is significant because the covenant partners of the church, as Brandon will tell you in a little bit, are called to nominate those that you think that are qualified as deacon, and we will examine and, and put them up for election in about six months or so after we're into the new facility. So it's, it's, it's crucial because um, a lot of times, especially what we look at today, people think of a, a deacon sometimes as just somebody who's just kind of like a maintenance guy who can just kind of fix things, a handyman in the church. And what you'll see from the scriptures is that that couldn't be further from the truth. A deacon may serve in that way, but he's a spiritually substantial man. Okay, and so what I want to look at today is just two things. Who are deacons and then what do deacons do? And I want you to listen intently, but not only for the sake of nominating deacons, you'll notice that the qualifications of a deacon are really about just being a solid Christian follower of Jesus. And so you're going to find some of these qualifications that I talk about this morning that are going to kind of convict you. And you're going to, you're going to be needing to ask the Spirit to search you and to know you that you might be convicted of your own shortcomings and trust Jesus more with your sanctification. So that's kind of where we're going today. So here's the big idea that I could just, if I could just sum it up in one, one statement, what, what I want to say today is this, that the family of God needs spiritual, spiritually qualified deacons called to complement the elders through service and stewardship. So let's dig into point number one, who are deacons? Diakonos, can y'all say that with me? I, you got, okay, you got to use that in a sentence this afternoon, all right? That's what you got to do, all right? Diakonos, that is the Greek word for where we get the, 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 the office of deacon. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that's a part of a word group 
uh, that's, uh, that has a pretty vast lexical range, actually. It can mean uh, anything from serve to servant or assistant or minister. You see all of those uses in the Greek language for this word. So I, what I think here is that, that Paul has in mind, as I've kind of studied it this week, is that he has in mind men that are called to come alongside the elders in a multitude of ways that are spiritual men, but especially through serving the physical needs of the body of Christ. So that could be acts of mercy in the community. That could be acts of justice. That could be acts of compassion. Those types of things. And I'm going to look at Acts 6 here in a few minutes to describe that a little bit further. But, but deacons in the Scriptures are always mentioned in conjunction with elders. There's not one instance that the office of deacon isn't mentioned in conjunction with elders. So that's why we see that the, the, the deacons come alongside the elders and serve the mission of God uh, together. And it, it's key for us because out of the gate, I want you to see, like I said a second ago, that deacon isn't just someone who fixes the toilet when it breaks or something like that. It's not this low role. It's a role of service, but it's a role of spiritual service to the family of God as well. And it's crucial for us to get clear vision so that we can, by God's grace, put the right people in place in our own bodies. So let me remind you of what uh, Paul writes to Timothy, and then we're just going to unpack just four character qualities that we see, uh, that are groups of character qualities that we see in 1 Timothy. Let me read it again for you real quick. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy, for dishonest gain, they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives must be dignified, not slanders, not sober-minded, but faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. And also, great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, so he kind of sums this up by saying that there's a reward for serving as a deacon. That you might not be seen and celebrated and exalted here on this earth, but there is a, there is a confidence that you gain by serving Jesus' church, especially in the form of a deacon, that you will be rewarded for. So um, as we look at this, let's just let's dig in uh, together. The, I would say this, the only uh, qualification really that you see for a deacon that is not a qualification for an elder is that phrase, able to teach. But, but interestingly enough, the first deacons that we see established in Acts chapter 6, are, two of them are Philip and Stephen. What are the first things that they do? They preach and teach and even baptize. So, so it's just interesting to think about the nature of, of what a deacon is. And so while they focus on service and stewardship, it doesn't mean that they're not able to teach or not able to preach. It just means that they serve the church in this particular fashion. So let's look at the first group of kind of characteristics here. I would define them as that, that a deacon is a self-disciplined person. So he, he talks about this idea of being dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. So... Uh, the qualifications of deacons are so similar to elders because they are intended, as I said a minute ago, to work so closely with one another. The first thing that we see is this, is that, that this person is supposed to be dignified. So what does dignified mean? It means this, that a deacon is worthy of respect. 
So inside the church, it's a person that is worthy of your respect. Not, not saying they're entitled for respect, but worthy of respect. They live their lives in such a way that they're just respectable people. Not only inside the church, though, but also outside the church, among their unbelieving neighbors and coworkers and friends. This is a, this is a man whose attitudes, behaviors, and decisions winsomely gain the respect of other people. Now, one thing you'll notice about Paul is this, is that he is viciously concerned with the public witness of the church. He's, he's so concerned with it because he knows that our sinful nature and our flesh will run the name of Jesus through the mud if we're not cautious. And Jesus is worth so much more than that. And Paul lays it on over and over again. He's basically saying this, if you have a red flag about a man's life, his doctrine, or his conduct, then don't be surprised if when you put him in ordained leadership, that it comes back against the church that that man is not a man that deserves to be in that office. Don't be surprised if you have these red flags and you put someone up and then it comes back on the church. Because to, to, to take a, a role of leadership in any place, but especially in the church, is to put a magnifying glass on your life and a target on your back. Amen? If you've been in the office before, you know. If you've been in leadership before, you know. So it's not to say that if you think of a person, you're like, oh, I just don't really know. There's a couple of areas. It's not, we're not getting hyper-judgmental. We're just saying that let's take time and not lay hands on too hastily. That, that sanctification is so important in the life of a believer as they follow Jesus. So we ask ourselves this question, you know, what does the private and public life of this person look like? And we, we put it back on ourselves as well. What does my life say about who Jesus is publicly? Right? We, we have to ask ourselves that question too. We can't just ask it for someone else. But what does my life say about Jesus publicly? What do my conversations reveal about the person and work of Jesus? What does my social media feed reveal about the person and work of Jesus? Over and over and over again, we ask ourselves that question because Paul was so concerned with the, with the nature and the character of the church and its public witness. The second thing he says is this, that this person shouldn't be a double-tongued person. So what does that mean? It, it literally means to speak out of both sides of your mouth. So this is, to be a double-tongued person is to, is to, be, a, 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 to be a person whose word really isn't good. It can't be trusted. Uh, maybe they, they say things that are not true. They exaggerate things. They, they, they may say one thing to another person and then another thing to you, and you, you come back and you find that out. It really is the characteristic that has to do with integrity of speech. Can your speech be trusted? And so we ask ourselves that same question. Can my speech be trusted? I've heard several of you, since Brandon preached that sermon on gossip and slander, I've heard several of you be like, oh man, this is really challenging. And it, was, it is for me too to think, should these things that I'm saying be shared with this person? Or is this thing that I'm saying helpful for their spiritual edification and the growth of the church? Or should it just be kept to myself? It's questions that you have to ask. He's saying for a deacon, it is so crucial that they have integrity in their speech because they will often be placed in between elders and hurting people uh, of the church in our city. And we need to ensure integrity of speech. Why? Because of the purity of the gospel that we carry with us. That's why it's so significant, so crucial. So we ask ourselves that question. 
What do my words say about the person and work of Jesus in his church? The third thing about being a self-disciplined person, Paul says that, that this person shouldn't be addicted to much wine. So this is a little bit of a tricky one, and I'm going to lean in, and I'm going to ask each of you to consider what I'm saying, not just for that person that you think might be a deacon, but for your own heart. Um, it's what you, what, the first thing I want you to notice is that it's not a total ban on alcohol or really any other legal substance. We could kind of, we could put all those together here, but it is a word for us to take caution into our own lives. It's for this reason that some people at New City Church abstain completely from the consumption of alcohol. Because for them, it's playing with fire. Maybe they've got a family history like I do, or maybe any other thing like that. So they choose to abstain completely from the use of alcohol. And it's, for them, it's simply not worth the, the potential disastrous impact on their lives and Jesus' church. And so Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about this subject. And for them, the context was eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols, but it had a similar impact on the life of the church. It was a, it was a, it was a polarizing topic. Some people ate it, some people didn't. And, and here's what Paul said to help them clarify whether they should eat this meat or not. And for us, we could say whether we should drink this drink or not. He says this, 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or whether you drink, or we could say whether you vape, I mean, whatever it is for you, whatever it is, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And this is the litmus test for us, church. Is my eating, is my drinking, is my use of whatever liberty that I could partake in under the sun, is it, uh, whatever it is as a Christian that I could do, am I doing it unto God's glory or am I doing it unto my flesh? That, that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Is my relationship or lack of relationship with substances like alcohol, smoking, etc., overconsumption of food, any of those things, is it controlled by the Spirit of God or is it controlled by my flesh? That, that's the question that we have to consider. Because when it's controlled by the Spirit, here's the deal. We are walking in the light as He is in the light. That's the difference because when you're walking in the light, you're open to correction, you're open to rebuke, you're open to change, you're open to all of those things. But when it is in the darkness, what do you do? You hide it. And when you hide any of those things, the devil is having his way through your flesh. I promise you that. And so Paul challenges us here. But I want to talk about the other ditch too. Not just the person that maybe is prone to be addicted to much wine, that maybe sometimes consumes it out of the cravings of the flesh and not, and not the response of a spirit-filled life of freedom and liberty in Jesus. But, but there's this other ditch too. And, and it's, it's, it can be prevalent in the church as well. And it's, it's the danger that someone who abstains completely from alcohol could, could lead to this completely other different form of sin that if not held out also by the Spirit of God. And it's this, that their convictions can lead them into sins of judgment and pride and arrogance toward people who choose not to abstain, abstain from alcohol or whatever other liberty we're talking about. And you can, get, you can get just as judgmental, just as sinful as you judge others in the same way. Now, I know some of you in this, in this body, in this room, you've come from different types of backgrounds that handle this differently. Now, the, the main thing is this, is that we realize that 
no matter what we choose to do, no matter what our conscience is convinced of, that we hold it out before the Lord and we let his light shine on it as we handle it. Some of you may be, after today, you may say, you know what, I need to abstain from alcohol. It's just playing with fire from my life. If that is where the Spirit of God leads you, praise God. But it ought not to lead to judgment of others because that's just as sinful. So I don't know how this hits you today, but, but the, the flesh can cut us both ways. And, and the, the, the church that is driven by the Spirit of God allows the Spirit of God to, to drive and dictate how we live lives publicly and privately. And the question we ask ourselves is, does our relationship to alcohol or any other substance seem responsible and fitting for the life of a Christian that's filled with the Spirit of God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. And especially for those that we're going to put into spiritual leadership over our body. The fourth thing he says about being self-controlled is this. This is a person that's not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, now Paul warns us about this later in the, lo- uh, the letter of 1 Timothy. He writes to, to Timothy, he says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So we're asking ourselves, you know, these questions. What is my re- relationship with money and material possessions? Each and every one of us have a relationship with it. Is it driven by the Spirit of God or is it driven by the cravings of the flesh? It's the same question that we ask about being addicted to much wine. Money, the the interesting thing is this, is that money in American culture is such a private thing. It's, It's far more private in American culture than it is in any other culture that I've experienced before. And you know, as I was thinking this morning, you know what I think it is? It's because we love it so much. We, we love it so much that we don't want to talk about it to other people. We, we don't want to think about the fact that we might love it more than we love God. We don't want to think about the fact that, that it might have a grip on our heart, that it might be strangling our life in the Spirit. So the question that we ask ourselves is, what is our relationship to money? Everybody has a relationship to it. It's not about having money or not having money as a, as a person in spiritual leadership in the church as a deacon. You don't have to be poor to be a deacon. You don't have to be rich to be a deacon. But either way, you're called to have transparency and integrity in financial matters in the church. And so Paul's warning here is, is interesting that, that, that we're called to, to, to help discern, to look at the lives of those we're putting in leadership and to ask the question, what is their relationship with money? Because I, I can tell you this, I, I've been a part of churches before and, and had a great friend who was a pastor of a church in Indiana that had a, a lead deacon at his church that over the course of 10 years stole about $300,000 from the church. And it was just little by little by little by little by little. That's possible in any church, I'm just telling you that. And the greatest litmus test for can people handle money is how do they handle their own money? If they don't handle their own money, they're not going to handle God's money well. And so, so we ask ourselves that question. I know this is kind of in your face here, okay? But it's serious, serious enough for us to talk about. Paul, Paul leads us there. Um, but the question for you to also ask yourself is what is your relationship with money? And I found that the greatest litmus test for love of money is generosity. Because the only way to show that you love something is to give it away, Right? That's what, that's what Jesus said, if you love me, you'll, you'll lay down your lives for me, right? If you're my disciples, you'll lay down your lives daily and you'll follow me. That's what it means. And so Jesus uh, says also that our money follows our heart. So deacons are called to steward the resources of God's church financially and material in a, in a way that's filled with integrity. 
Um, and this is why really any nominees for this office in the church will be asked about this, what the relationship to money is, and, uh, and to really give kind of a narrative of their own stewardship because this is so crucial for the life of Jesus' church and so crucial for the integrity of our church in general and how we view and spend resources. Uh, so if a man is put forth and, and have, hasn't really ever tithed before, we're going to explore that. And, and the tithe, for those of you that are unfamiliar with that, is, is, the, is, a, um, is a 10% standard that was set forth in the Old Testament that, that we believe is ab- actually carried into the New Testament. And we, see, we, see, we don't see Jesus abolishing that. In, in fact, we, we see kind of the tithe as the, the floor, not the ceiling of giving. Je- Jesus says we're to give sacrificially and generously. And that's what we see over and over and over again with the people that, that Jesus commends for their giving, is that they give beyond their means, is what he says. And so as a church, we're gonna, if, if we have people that are nominated as deacons, men that are nominated as deacons, you better bet we're going to lean into that. Not in a legalistic way, but we've got to explore that, especially if they're called as, as leaders of our church to serve and to steward the resources of God's church. We've got to lean into that. Um, and so the, the second thing is this, I've got to keep going, um, is that He's doctrinally sound, okay? So we've talked about being self-controlled, but second thing, he's doctrinally sound. So they must hold the mystery of faith, verse 9, with a clear conscience. So this is similar to what I said last week. Deacons aren't just guys that are good at fixing things. They're men of spiritual substance. They know what they believe and why they believe it. Because deacons will be placed in countless situations where they will open God's word with hurting people and explain it and comfort them and pray uh, with them through God's word. They need to be able to do that. They don't have to be formal teachers. They don't have to have seminary degrees, but they need to be able to do that and have sound doctrine. The third thing is this, is that they need to be tested men. Verse 10 says this, and let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So this is what, uh, similar to what Paul said last week uh, in last week's text about not being a recent convert. So deacons are men that have walked with Jesus and are seasoned in Jesus. They have the aroma of Jesus about them. And, and frankly, for our context, they've been around New City Church for a long enough time for you to see them walking that out, walking that lifestyle out of service and stewardship in Jesus' family. We never want to just say, hey, I think this guy would be good, so let me put him up there for it. Maybe he can go for it. If that's the type of person we're looking at, what we want to see is them serving in those roles. And then next time around, we'll put them forth and lift them up. But we don't want guys that are striving up for this. We want guys that are already doing this type of work. Fourth is this, that they're leaders in the home. Now, Paul, Paul takes a little bit different angle with deacons here. All right, let me read it to you before I dig in. He says, their wives likewise, the deacons' wives, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, So this verse is interesting, right? It moves from just the character and qualities of the man to the marriage in general. It, it catches you off guard at first, but then if you've ever served deeply in ministry before as a married individual, it makes sense to you. Because uh, marriage, and, and this is not to say that, a, that, a, that an elder or deacon has to be married to be an elder or deacon. He's just saying if they are. 
um, marriage reveals who a person is. There's nothing like finding out who you are than getting married, okay? It's like a, holding a mirror up to your entire life. I mean, not just like money and bank accounts and sleeping habits, but like toothbrush and toothpaste. I mean, like everything, right? I mean, it's just never forget Megan saying like, hey, why do you, when you brush your teeth, why does stuff get on the mirror? I just don't understand that. Like, how does that work? I don't know. Marriage reveals everything about who, who you are. And in ministry, the, in the context of a marriage, is a joint partnership. Because all married couples must see the reality that God intends for us to lead and minister out of the strength of our marriages. Not for the sake of our marriages, but out of the strength. So, so what is happening in the spirituality of your, the confines of your own home is meant to bless the church, bless the world. It's not something you're working up to toward blessing, but that family that you have that God's called you to lead and invest in, that's what blesses the church. And um, this means that in this context, that a, that a man that is in process for ordained spiritual leadership in a local church, that you must see and believe that your wife is the most significantly influential person and ministry partner in your life. Amen? You must see that. Because if you don't see that, you're not ready, as Paul says. You're not ready for that. She's not just riding shotgun for your new ministry venture, all right? She is very much in this new venture with you. And you remember what Solomon wrote in, in Proverbs chapter 31? He says, an excellent, an excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than, than jewels or the office of a deacon or an elder or whatever else you put on there. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. As I've discovered, a godly wife in ministry has transformed the way that I think about serving in ministry. Both as a lay person when Megan and I were in Vegas and then uh, as a staff person in Indiana and here. Because when we first met, we, we actually like, some of you know this story, we, we butted heads pretty strongly. I kind of came in and I said, okay, uh, I'm the new intern in town. Um, I know you've been helping out with this ministry, but I'm, I'm kind of going to take over now if that's all right. And as you can imagine, <laughs> I didn't go over so well. Um, and, and as we kind of begin to walk this out and flesh this out over the last almost 13 years, we just begin to see this beautiful thing happen, that, that I am a stronger pastor to you at New City Church because I'm married to Megan. And, uh, and, and she is a stronger, stronger discipler of women and everything that she does because she's married to me. And we, we just have this venture together that's beautiful. It used to be a threat, but it's no longer that way. It's a partnership. It's this joint venture together. So and what you see is that you need the voice of your spouse in your life no matter what you're doing. You need, you're one flesh now and one spirit. And so Paul says if, if that's not what the, the spiritual life and marriage of a person uh, if that's not kind of what it looks like in their marriage, then, then maybe we need to hold off on, on putting them forth for leadership because this is such a joint, uh, uh, um, this is such a, a joint venture rather. Um, and he gives us four things real quick that are kind of qualifiers of the, the type of marriage you're looking at um, for, for the role of elder or deacon. He says this, that, that the wife should be dignified. And what that means is, as I said earlier, worthy of respect. She's a person that's winsomely engaged with others. Now, let, let me just say this. If, if this isn't present in your marriage, uh, fellas, this kind of comes back on your leadership. I, I hate to say that. That's kind of how this whole headship thing works. Okay, so, um, so as you think about this and you think about and consider your own marriage, um, these are the types of things that, um, 
that are kind of the, the, the markers we're looking for in spiritual leadership in the church of a marriage. He says, dignified. The, the second thing is this, not a slanderer. So what's a slander? Slander is someone who's looking for ways to criticize, find fault, tear down other people. So as a deacon, you're called to help hurting people uh, through loving mercy and justice. And, um, and you know, if, if, if maybe your, your counterpart, your spouse, your wife isn't, isn't like engaged in that type of compassion and, and humility, and I, I know this is in our face here, but Paul says maybe it's a red flag that maybe you're not ready yet. Maybe, not that you'll never be ready, but those are the types of things because there's nothing that will kill a church faster, as we've said often, than gossip and slander. And when you get into these situations as a deacon where you're dealing with hurting and broken people, you have all this confidential information that you're dealing with. And not that we share it with our wives or anything like that, but you're just in these situations that are sensitive and they require great spirit-driven care. Uh, the third thing is this, sober-minded. So, so this is, this is a, a marriage and a woman who is stable, self-controlled, level-headed, and free from excess in life. She lives a humble life. Kind of a Proverbs 31 aim in life. And uh, she's humble in the way she thinks and lives and looking to serve just like her husband is. And fourthly, it's kind of a, a, a summary of this whole thing. He says that, that she's faithful in all things. And it's kind of this comprehensive summary to what Paul's been saying that overall, she's just a, a trustworthy, dependable, and reliable person. And I can tell you this, that there are so many women in this church that fit that description right there. We are a blessed, blessed church. And so this is kind of the, the qualifications of what Paul calls us to take inventory about in the leadership of our local church. So think through those things as, you, as we go through this process together for the next decade of our church and thinking about what leadership's going to look like. But secondly, let me, just, let me just briefly talk about what deacons do in the local church. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to flip open to Acts chapter 6 here. We're going to look at the first six verses. So the the context of this is the early church was blowing up and growing. People were getting saved. The apostles were leading it all. But just like any other church, it got messy real quick, six chapters in. And, and here's what's going on. Let me read it. Uh, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. Those are the Greeks. The Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Imagine that. It was, it was a racial thing. Um, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and brought the whole church together and said, hey, this isn't right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you, nominate from among you, seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, and, uh, and whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And they said, uh, pleased with the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and uh, Nicanor, and Timon, and Par Parmenas, I need Megan up here, uh, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And so what you see happening in this passage is that the role of elder was so important that, that if they neglected it to, to enter into this, this, this space of just dealing with the dispute and the conflict of the Hebrews versus the Greek widows and the distribution of the food, that the ministry of the word and prayer would be neglected and the church would suffer. It wasn't like, hey man, my hands are, I, I, I'm kind of a white collar guy, you know, I'm not really getting into that. It, it wasn't that at all. 
It was the the difference in distinct roles in the flourishing of the church. So what we begin to see is that there was, I I truly believe that this is the first example of deacons in the church. Many many people agree with me on that. Um, And and I'm convinced that this is a a model for what deacons were uh, designed to do within the church. Were these the, the seven, the only seven people doing deaconing work, service work in the life of the church? No way. We, we see that there, there's a role of authoritative leadership necessary for organizing this. These seven guys weren't doing all the work. They were organizing the work so that they could be efficient and effective in the care of God's people, especially hurting people. And, uh, and, and so you see that the, the Greek minority widows were being passed by. There's probably some racial stuff going on, probably some widow stuff going on there. And, and, and they said, hey, this can't happen anymore. We've got to figure this out. And so you see that this, this kind of office of deacon that comes to, alongside the elders to support them as the hands and feet of the church began to uh, arise. And, and we see that in Acts chapter 6. And, um, you know, the interesting thing is for that word for deacon is that it's used all over the New Testament after that to explain different people. Some may be in offices, some maybe not. Uh, and, and I would say this, we, we, could, we could call everyone that serves at New City Church a, a, an assistant to the deacons, an, ex, an, an extension of the deacons, those that serve and give their, their lives for the sake of the flourishing of the church. I mean, places like Romans chapter 16, where, uh, where, where Phoebe is, is, is the, the word for deacon is used for Phoebe. Listen to it. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant or deacon of the church of, of Syncre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron on, of many and on my behalf as well. And, uh, you know, so, and you see other men and women that Paul describes like Archippus and Tychicus and all those, all those weird names at the end of his letters. He's writing to people that have been servants and deacons in the lives of the church. They've, they've, they've operated out of that gifting. They're all carrying it out. But up until this, this point, our culture as a church has never been about people jockeying for ordained leadership. It's, it's, not, it's not been about having a name on a website or, or kind of getting to some position of power. We've, we haven't seen that actually at all in our church. And our hope and our prayer is that that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't start now. Um, and we see Jesus really being the one uh, to give us a model of how that wouldn't happen. So I just want to close with John 13 really quickly here. What I want you to notice about John 13 is that Jesus' motivation for serving in the life of his father's kingdom was all about remembering his relationship to his father. And I think that's the pathway forward for us as well. Here's what he says in John 13, then I'll close in prayer. Before the Passover feast, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. This is the key. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand and that He had come from God and was going back to God. So that was the motivation. The Father had given Him everything. He'd come from God. He was going back to God. He remembered the Gospel. Remember the good news of who God was. His Father is. He rose from supper and He laid aside His outer garments and He took a towel and tied it around His waist and He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. Now in New City, that position as a servant, as a towel holder in the kingdom of God is motivated by who Jesus is to us. And my prayer is, is that for decades to follow, 
that we would be servants of the Most High God in His kingdom for this community. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You. Um, we thank You that You care about leadership in Your church. You don't just leave it up to us to figure it out. Lord, we just ask that, that You give us great grace in this next season of our church as, as we nominate, equip, elect, and install elders and deacons that wouldn't be... There's nothing special about these men, Lord, other than the fact that they belong to You and that our church sees fit that they might serve in roles of spiritual leadership in our community. Lord, we know that, uh, that You care about this, and so we care about it, Lord. So would You help us uh, to serve with faith and to serve with humility in Your kingdom for years and years to come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.